0: Welcome back to the Non-Standard 14er podcast, the podcast that talks about everything the route description leaves out about hiking and climbing Colorado's 14ers. We're a few days removed from Veterans Day, and which is uh, uh, apropos for our guest today. He is a chaplain. He's climbed all the 14ers. We had him on the podcast before when he was talking about his book that he wrote with his brother and his father about climbing Colorado's 14ers. Today we're talking about his second book, Uh, World War II at Camp Hale, blazing a new trail in the Rockies. So we're welcoming back to the podcast, David Witte.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
0: Also joining the podcast is our friend Scott, also known as Wangler. Hello,
2: David. Pleasure to meet you. Looking forward to chatting. Joining from Salt Lake City
0: is the exiled Michigander.
3: Hey, nice to meet you, David. And
0: I'm Short Rope Stifler. Today we're talking about Camp Hale and the training around Leadville that utilized our mountains and 14 ers here in Colorado that set them up for their deployment in the mountains of World War II. Do you, what's your military, do you, would you like to be referred to as your military, uh, your rank or? You can,
1: so another interesting point on that, um, I'm a chaplain in the army and we're actually the only people in the military not referred to by rank. It's a it's a, a regulation that uh, they put for chaplains, which I like because they want soldiers to be approachable to a chaplain. So we don't go by any rank, although I am a major. But, um, oh, yeah, no. we're just called chaplain. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: that's a cool trivia. That's neat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's good timing. A couple of days after Veterans Day and a couple of <sighs> weeks after Biden was here dedicating Camp Hale.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm honored to uh, make it on here twice. Uh, appreciate it. Uh,
0: yeah, thanks for joining. but They got your book in front of you.
1: Awesome. Look at that, both of you got <laughs> it. Yeah, absolutely. God does really? his,
0: his his homework.
1: Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see. You know, I I don't really get updates from my publisher as far as how many they actually sell out, but. I like to watch the uh, Amazon ratings of where, you know, where your book is amongst all the World War II, you know, books. And when the Camp Hale announcement was made uh, about the National Monument with President Biden um, saw a big jump in sales and, you know, the, the book was published in what, 2015 and sales are still going pretty strong, which I've, I'm actually shocked about because it's a, I mean, it's kind of a niche, you know, interest. It's not uh um, you know, something that everybody knows about or is interested in, but it does seem to still do well. And in fact, I was just in Leadville in September and stopped by the the only bookstore that's left there these days and talked to the owner. And he was like, yeah, it's one of our best sellers and people like it. So yeah, that's awesome to hear that at least it's still going.
2: Yeah, I would think that, uh, you know, I obviously people that are you know World War II aficionados. You know who, who get into that, right? I mean, I think you have that audience there, and then yeah. you get your your local, you know, Colorado people who are just interested in it from right. you know what's in their backyard and and that. So yeah, yep. So D- David, where where are you uh, joining us from today? Where, where where's the laundry? <laughs> so,
1: yeah, I, I grew up in Illinois, uh, west suburb of Chicago, Lombard. And then after college, moved down to Little Rock. And so, yeah, my house is outside uh, Little Rock in the county. And, uh, yeah, okay. so that's where I'm joining you all from. Okay.
0: I was just curious to dive in uh, ask you how long this book took to write and how, why, you, why you got into it. And uh, kind of just to speak about the research project. Were you, are you digging through, like, History Colorado, like, old files or finding old photographs. I know a lot of the captions on your your book says uh, personal collection.
1: Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of different archives that I dug into. The biggest one is the Denver Public Library. Uh, They have the uh, archive for the 10th Mountain Division in World War II. So all of the documents, uh, photographs, all of that that veterans turn over goes to them. And so I spent most of my time there The other big location is the National Archives in Maryland. So they actually have the uh, Mountain Training Center documents, which was sort of the the training organization at Camp Hale um, that did all the ski training and the rock climbing that taught the soldiers those things. So their documents were up in, in Maryland. And then I did a little bit of time in Leadville at the Lake County Public Library. They have the Camp Hale completion report, which was uh, the Pando Constructors documents and and Army Corps of Engineers put together, um, the finished product of what Camp Hale really was. Um, Yeah, my personal collection. So I'm I'm a big collector of World War II 10th Mountain items. Uh, That includes, you know, photographs, documents and all the equipment. And so that's actually leading into my second book, um, or well, my third book, including the 14-er one. Working on that right now, I'm about 250 pages into it. It's going to be longer than the Camp Hale book. That one's actually focusing in on the clothing and equipment of the 10th Mountain in World War II. So now we're talking about the rucksacks, the skis, the parkas, the ice axes, crampons, all that cool stuff it was kind of one of those things where so i did 5 years of research for the the camp hale book it started out as my master's thesis you know all the other students in my my public uh, history class were doing arkansas topics and i had literally just moved to arkansas 3 years ago and had no interest whatsoever in anything arkansas and so i told my advisor i said look i want to do something on uh, camp hale in colorado and uh, he was like, what is that and why? <laughs> so I explained all that to him a little bit and sure enough, got into doing that as my master's thesis. And then after that was finished, I went another two years and you know, turned it into a book that you could actually read and enjoy and not a, <laughs> a student written thesis. So uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a lot of work doing research but I'm now going on seven years of research for my next book. Because I started that pretty much right after Camp Hale was done. Because, you know, you, you get all this research and you're like, well, what do I do with it now? You know, I wrote this one book. And I'll tell you, research has really changed nowadays because it used to be, you know, you go into one of these old library archives and you're taking notes on a piece of paper. Yeah, that that's done. Nowadays, you go in with your cell phone and you pull out a thousand different documents and you do it as fast as you can. Take a picture, take a picture, take a picture.
2: Really? and
1: you get out of that archive as fast as possible and you walk home with your cell phone and thousands of pages of history. Wow. And so yeah, it's it, interesting. It, huh. Yeah. I literally I was in Washington DC on a work trip and it took an afternoon to go up to the archives and just, you know, took pictures of a couple thousand documents, got out of there within a couple of hours, and that was it. I got everything I needed just from doing that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, research has changed in the, in the 21st century. And yeah. so that is super helpful because then, you know, you have every document. It's not like just stuff you were taking notes on about Camp Hale. Well, now I've got everything. And so if I want to write another book, I've got, you know, all this research I can go back and look at and, uh, you know, find different things I didn't see the first time around.
2: Hmm. So. That's interesting. Was any of that on, on microfiche or is it? Yes. Yeah. So I remember like, those old days. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm probably dating myself, but uh, yeah, you know, it's like I haven't even thought about that in years.
1: Yeah. So Lake County public library has the camp Hill ski Zet newspaper also, and it was all on microfilm. Hmm. And so I had to actually, and now I will say that they are converting all of that digitally now to be online. Okay. Um, but I had to go and actually make a copy from microfilm of every single page that I wanted, which was a lot of work, <laughs> but that, I mean, again, that was back in, you know, 2010 to 2011. So yeah, even things in the last 10 years have changed significantly to where they're digitizing just about everything. Thank God. Yeah. It <laughs> Otherwise it's a mess to get into that microfilm.
0: I was curious when you write the family and a full-time job and, uh, What's do you have a do you have a set like I'm going to write two hours I'm going to do 700 words today or I'm going to lock myself in the laundry and not leave until <laughs> 11 p.m. or what?
1: That is the tough part, you know, finding time. Yeah, it, it's just whenever I got a free moment, maybe um you know working especially during COVID, uh, I was working from home and the kids were at school, and so you know if I got all my work done, shoot, I I put some time into you know doing my my reading and writing. Uh, it's slowed down a lot now since I'm back to work, you know, in the office. But um, yeah, just whenever I can find a free minute, kids go to bed, you know, seven thirty p.m. Let's get them in bed, and I got some time to do things. So yeah, it's it is tough.
2: Yeah, I I I would imagine, uh, and I mean, I'm not a writer. I know, Chris, you're uh, you're you've had your your foray into that, but uh, I would imagine that the second book, the third book, like at least you have the confidence that you know that you can can do it, right? Like I think so many people think that's such a daunting uh, task to even figure out how to start, right?
1: It is. It really is a daunting task because, you know, and there's different types of books, of course, but anything, you know, nonfiction history, it, the, the amount of research is, is just incredible. And You know, like I said, the the actual research itself went pretty quick. I got thousands of of documents, but then actually reading through them is where the work really begins. And, uh, yeah, just getting all the details of of all that research into what you want. um, Yeah, significant amount of time. But once you get the research done, for me at least, the writing comes pretty naturally and pretty quick. Uh, You know, I I get excited about topics like this. And for me, it's just let's just get sit down and do it. Let's write it.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it, it's really interesting that you're writing a book on the equipment um, of the tenth mountain. One of the the notes that I jotted down as I was reading, I was thinking about eighty years ago, right? In the uh, you know the the gloves, the the boots that like I it just like there has to I mean obviously light years of advance on uh, you know the protection from the elements it must have just been horrific uh, 80 years ago out in those elements
1: yeah that's one of the great parts of this story that's going to come out in my next book is that the U.S. Army had no idea what they were doing going into World War II regarding mountain troops we were behind the rest of the world you know, Germany had them, Italy had them, Finland had them, Russia had them, France had them, you know, we, we were just like every war, you know, we don't want to be any part of that, we're not going to take part in, in training up for this. Um, and so the great story, and you probably got that out of reading my Camp Hale book, is that this whole movement with the U.S. Army was driven by civilians it was people like Charles Minnie Dole and Roger Langley of the you know U.S. Ski Patrols, U.S. Ski Association. They're the ones that came in, you know, met with the president of the United States and said, "Y'all need to get your act together, or we're going to get whooped." And it was kind of a, a two front interest. So in in 1939, Finland had ski troops fighting against the Russians when the Russian, you know, the Russians invaded. And they were able to prove to the world how important ski and mountain troops were. In one of the battles, they had 11,000 Finnish troops on skis against 44,000 Russians, and they won. And it was kind of a a guerrilla war of ski in, kill the enemy, and get out. And so that was kind of the, the turning point in 1939 that really got America started thinking about maybe we need some mountain troops. We need something to you know, combat the enemy. And then you take into account, you know, what if Germany invaded through Canada? What if we had to fight in the Canadian Rockies, uh, an enemy coming into our country? How in the world would we do that with flatland troops? And so between those two issues, um, Charles Minnie Dole was able to uh, really pressure the the War Department and President Roosevelt himself I mean he met with him in in Washington and uh, convinced him that yeah this is what we need to do we need to start a ski trooper mountain trooper program and that was the beginning
0: was there ski resorts back in the 30s or is it like all like back country back then
1: so there were a few small resorts in the 30s um, yeah you know, a lot of people think about the Great Depression and and people didn't have money to go ski But it also, people were unemployed and had time on their hands and took to the backcountry. And actually, a lot of skiing interest in America began in the 1930s uh, because of that fact. Now, we didn't have any, you know, of course, the big resorts in Colorado. That's another great part of this story is that these veterans that came back from World War II from the 10th Mountain Division in 1945, started many of the biggest ski resorts in Colorado. Arapahoe Basin was two veterans from the 10th mountain that started it. Vail, uh, Pete Sieber in 1962, he, he started, uh, converted actually a, a sheep pasture into what is now Vail Ski Resort. And he was a veteran. Aspen, uh, 1947 Friedel Pfeiffer, uh, Percy Rideout, John Litchfield, um, all those guys were veterans. They got together and, and made Aspen into what it is today. So in, there were skiing opportunities already in Aspen um, during the war. And in fact, that was a recreational outfit um, outlet for the, the veterans at Camp Hale. And so they did take advantage of that. Even Breckenridge, um, Paul Duke, he was executive manager of Breckenridge in 1961 and helped turn it into what it is today. So, all of these guys, uh, Steamboat Springs, um, all of these were veterans that helped start these and build them up into what they are today.
2: I know one of the the photos in your book was of the rope tow. And so did they, I mean, w- when was the chairlift invented? Like there, there weren't chairlifts yet, right? Or was it all rope tow or?
1: Yeah, for the most part, they were T-bars that uh, were oh, introduced T-bar. right. okay. yeah, in America. Yeah, um, I, there were a few prior to the one they installed at Cooper Hill for uh, the Camp Hale veterans, but yeah, that was a pretty new thing in America. It, it wasn't real big around the country to have a, a bar lift or any type of lift to get you to the top of a mountain. It, it was Army engineers, uh, the 126th Engineer Battalion, that actually built Cooper Hill, and so you guys have all probably skied there and and you've seen all the 10th Mountain names on the on the runs. Uh, that's because it was designed by Army engineers and built that way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Knowles, the National Outdoor Leadership School, that was founded by Paul Petzel, who was also a um, Tenth Mountain Camp Hale veteran uh, that served. And Nike, uh, William Bill Bowerman, Tenth Mountain veteran, founded co-founded Nike. So really? a lot of big name guys that uh, came out to do some pretty amazing things uh, after the war. Mm-hmm.
0: I was intrigued by all the various other options they looked at. I mean, they were looking at Vermont and I think Michigan and North Yellowstone and Aspen. How come they, why did they they decide on uh, the Leadville area?
1: Yeah, so they took a lot of factors into account on picking Pando or the the valley where Camp Hale was. The biggest things they needed back in World War II was a railroad, number one. Because that's how they hauled troops in and out. That's how they hauled equipment. You know, all of these these barracks were coal fired, and so they had to haul coal in, and that's not going to come easy on a truck at high elevation. So the railroad was number one. Um, you know, they also wanted a place that was high elevation, which the army, again, like I said before, they had no idea what they were doing, and they didn't think about the fact that you know. Maybe in the Canadian Rockies, we'd be at the elevation of Camp Hale. But if you go over to Europe, you're most likely not going to be fighting above 10,000 feet. That's just not a place where you fight wars. And so, um, you know, they wanted some place that was high with a lot of snow. And the forester told the, the Army Corps of Engineers, hey, this, this is where the most snow falls in Colorado, is right here. And then, of course, they wanted a flat area where you could build a, an entire city. And they found that in Camp Hale, uh, had a water supply. A lot of people think they got their water from the Eagle River, but they actually didn't. They, did, they dug wells down to get water because the Eagle River would freeze in the winter. And uh-huh. so um, they, they had everything they needed. They had, you know, ski slopes on the south side. So where the Colorado Trail comes into Camp Hale on that south side, the mountains that are, that are are you know, on the south end, those were converted into ski slopes in Camp Hale. Oh, really? Now, of course, the biggest ski slopes were at Cooper Hill, just up on Tennessee Pass, um, but they did utilize right there in Camp Hale to have some skiing opportunities to teach the basics.
0: Hmm. I didn't you ski that today? Like, why do you go in dis- disuse? You think that would still be a ski run or a
1: well, it's pretty it max- pretty small mountains right there, so they're not long runs, no, not no. nothing like Cooper Hill, and so yeah, it um, yeah it, Camp Hale kind of came together with everything they needed. Uh, you know, they looked at Aspen, but the the railroad at Aspen was run down. They looked at West Yellowstone, but that's when uh, Frederick Delano, who was the uncle of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, the trumpeter swan was endangered species in the area. And, you know, as politics goes, he killed that idea with the War Department pretty quick when they wanted to possibly build in, in West Yellowstone. So there was all these little factors that kind of played into it and said, you know what, Pando's it, and, and we're going to go to Colorado. As of
0: a swan, though, it, it could have been in West Yellowstone, we wouldn't have Camp Hill in Colorado. If it wasn't for swan?
2: <laughs> it could be. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Until I read the book, I had never heard the name Pando before and so but there, there's not a there's not a town anymore of pandas no, not okay. anymore um there
1: were there was a town there was about 300 yeah. people that lived there in 1942 when they they looked at building Camp Hale it, it was a stop on the Denver Rio Grande Western Railroad and um they had a, a, a ice harvesting business there so that they would use Blocks of ice, they put them on the train, and that's your refrigeration for the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. So you know, it, yeah, it, it was it was sparsely populated, but uh, yeah, it was a town.
2: What's the mileage to Leadville again?
1: I think it's about seventeen miles.
2: Seventeen, okay,
1: yeah.
0: You mentioned the Eagle River. They they had to reroute the Eagle River, right? I mean, it's basically yes. a swamp, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, so it was a swamp. Um, the whole Va- Eagle Valley had uh, four feet of what they call muskeg on it, which is basically, a on well, the winter, a, a frozen swamp. Um, in the summer, just mushy nastiness that you'd sink into, couldn't drive vehicles on it. So what they did was they, they scraped two million cubic yards of dirt off the sides of the mountains, filled the entire valley in. And then rerouted the Eagle River straight down the valley. And that is actually uh, one of the issues that has come up uh, with this new national monument designation is, can we return Camp Hale, keeping the a lot of the history alive, but can we return it to its natural um, nature, so that the river can flow the way that it used to, and, you know, to Um, You know, there's a lot of different interest groups that are are trying to get their points made at Camp Hale. And this would definitely make a lot of the the naturalists happy to, you know, let's let's bring the valley back to the way it was. Now, of course, that raises some other issues for, you know, there's a company called Nova Guides that operates in the valley today. And they do snowmobiling and uh, four wheeling and all that kind of stuff you know, they're going to want to keep doing their business. Well, if you change where the river is and turn it back into a swamp, that's going to affect, you know, their business. So all these different parties now are getting together. And this is what is interesting about uh, the National Monument designation. You know, a lot of people got really excited about this. And and I'm excited, too. It brings a lot of attention to Camp Hale. But there's also another part of it that is potentially not all that exciting because all a National Monument does is kind of protects the land the way that it is already. It actually preserves any oil and gas leasing that's already done on the land, so that can continue, which there is none in Camp Hill right now, but um, if there were, it would continue. So NOVA guides are probably gonna be able to continue doing what they're doing because it's preserved within the National Monument designation. And what's unique about Camp Hale is that this is all U.S. Forest Service. And this was something that I didn't even know until a couple of years ago. Not every national monument is run by the National Park Service. I had that assumption a couple of years ago that, yeah, National Park Service runs all the national monuments, national parks, national historic sites, rivers, you know, lakeshores, whatever. No, a national monument only like I said, preserves the land the way that it already is. So if it's run by the Forest Service, now the Forest Service has control of the National Monument. So Camp Hale is only one of 13 in the entire country right now that is completely run by the United States Forest Service. There's 130 National Monuments across the country, 13 Forest Service, and there's another slew of them that are uh, US Fish and Wildlife run, Um, BLM run, and even NOAA, Oceanic Group. So the National Park Service actually only has 88, I think, out of the 130 that they oversee and run. Hmm. And so, you know, a lot of the, the descendants groups of the 10th mountain were really excited that we're gonna have this grand museum, which eventually may happen, but the Forest Service is not exactly the best at interpreting history. And I kind of hate to say that because they do have some good interpretive aspects out there, but they don't certainly don't have museums like the National Park Service does to interpret history. So that's the struggle right now. And and I've been in contact with the Forest Service trying to, you know, input my own knowledge uh, to hopefully help with the interpretive aspects. And they're kind of like, well, you know, we're just in the studying phase right now. And I'm foreseeing that this might take two to three years before the Forest Service, you know, acts on anything. The ideal thing to happen would be for Congress to step in and say, you know, it's a national monument, but now we want to take it one step further. And you know, here's some money to put forth to build a museum or some interpretive aspect, which they can do. They can they can trump anything that comes out of the Antiquities Act of 1906, which is what President Biden used to uh, name it Camp Haley National Monument. Congress could come in and make it a National Historic Site and put a museum there, you know, whatever they want to do um, could take place. So not a lot's going to change there with the new National Monument designation at this point, at least, for the next couple of years.
0: Do we have others in Colorado of the 130 you mentioned, National Monuments?
1: Yeah, so uh, Brown's Canyon is one of another one of the 13 just down but when road, is it? that's a national monument that uh, President Obama designated in 2015. So down there by Salida mm-hmm. and uh, it is also U.S. Forest Service and BLM run, I believe. So no National Park Service involvement there either. And it's one of those things you can drive down U.S. 24 and never even realize that there's a national monument, in, you know, in the river.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and so they just don't get the recognition a lot of times that a national park uh, gets in in America.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you talk about preserving the land as it is. One of the things that really struck me, and I thought was interesting, reading the book and looking at the the, the photos is, you know, when, when I walked through there this summer, when, when Chris and I walked through there, it was probably seven o'clock in the morning. I have just some beautiful, beautiful pictures crossing the valley there, but there is absolutely nothing, right? I, I mean, it is, you, you know, except for when you walk by the, the bunkers, I think they were or like, the, 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 that's the only thing that I saw. And I saw reference in, in your book, you know, it's nothing but foundations here. But, you know, to me, it was just fascinating to look at those photos and try to orient it and look just the mass buildings and construction. And for it now to be, you know, I I wouldn't even call it a ghost town, right? Because there's like there's nothing there. I mean, it's just I, I I thought that was just really fascinating how over 80 years it's really just re, kind of returned you know to nature so to speak
1: yeah you're absolutely right uh, where the colorado trail comes in on the south side so that's the rifle range that you guys were seeing those bunkers are actually where they would raise and lower the targets and so if you looked close enough you know there was the bunker on. Um, you know if you're facing to the north and then right behind that is a pulley system you might have seen some wheels with some cable hmm. And they would attach um, the targets on that and pull the cable to get the target up. And of course, they had bunkers there because that's where the folks that were working the targets would be and they didn't want to get shot. So um, yeah, that that was the rifle range. And there was there's berms. If you look out across there heading north, you'll see about three berms. And those were the different distances that they would shoot from. Hmm. Um, So, you know, nowadays we've got you stay in one spot to shoot and they've got pop-up targets in the military for the distances. Well, back in the day, you had to actually move where you were shooting from because the targets were staying in one place. So that's how you got your distances. And uh, I I know some folks that still go there and shoot because it is National Forest. I don't know about what the monument will do to that now. But um, yeah, it's kind of neat just to relive that aspect of, uh, of the rifle range the only other yeah there's there's concrete foundations a lot of them you know maybe one foot off the ground you can still see the actual concrete foundation the other one that's really pictured in camp hale is the field house so they're still they're probably what six to ten feet tall concrete um you know angled concrete pillars and they're still standing those were the support beams for the field house at camp hale Um, But other than that, there, there, yeah, you're right, there really is not a whole lot left. They started tearing things down right at the end of the war in 1945, just saying, look, we really don't need to train mountain troops anymore. And um, yeah, by the 1950s, there was only, you know, a handful of buildings left, maybe 10 or 15 or so. By 1965, it, it was just completely gone. They did in the mix there, they trained uh, Tibetan rebels to go back to Tibet and fight. The CIA trained them at Camp Hale. Really? Um, This was in, I think it was 1950s. They used it as a secluded location. So the folks that lived in Leadville and worked there, they couldn't tell anybody what they were doing. Rumors got out or or they made a rumor get out that, oh, this is a nuclear testing site. You know, we don't want people to know really what it is. But yeah, CIA Mm -hmm. was actually working there. And so that was kind of the last big thing that happened at Camp Hale. But ever since 1965, it has just been kind of desolate.
3: Where was it that the 10th Mountain Division moved to after Camp Hale?
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting part of the story. Why did the 10th Mountain Division, and this was in, uh, I believe it was February of 44, they went to Camp Swift, Texas. You know, they go from the coldest part of the country to hot as hell, And the question, and this really killed morale amongst the soldiers, why in the world would the War Department take your mountain troops from Colorado and move them to Texas, Flatland, Texas? And and that was because, um, you know, the the mountain troops had been training since 1941. They were formed on November 14, I believe, 1941, 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment at Fort Lewis, Washington. And then of course they went to Camp Hale in 1942. So they trained for three good years and were never deployed. I mean, we were involved in December of 41 in the war and for three years, why did the war department not deploy the mountain troops? Well, number one, they they just couldn't figure out how to utilize them. They were so new, so unique. They did not have the mechanized infantry like the other divisions in the U.S. Army because they were very light. They actually obtained the designation 10th Light Infantry Division, whereas every other one was just a standard infantry division. So anyway, why they sent them down to Camp Swift, Texas, was because the War Department said, this war is going to end by the time we find a use for these guys. Let's change them back into sort of a regular infantry division, start mechanizing them. You know, the mountain troops had 75 millimeter howitzers, which they were able to take into the mountains. Why don't we equip them maybe with a 105 millimeter now? Let's go bigger, let's go better. We're gonna make them a heavy equipment, infantry division, and now they'll be useful in Europe. And uh, there's a lot of historians that look back and say, well, this was a big mistake taking them to Camp Swift because that number one killed morale, but then number two kind of took away what we were training them for. You know, it was rock climbing, mountaineering, skiing. Thank God they they found a mission, of course, in Italy in January of, of 45 to where they actually utilized everything they learned at Camp Hale. And that's that's this great story of the 10th Mountain Division in World War II was, um, you know, scale and cliffs in the middle of the night using all of their rock climbing gear and Riva Ridge and Mount Belvedere. So that it, it makes a really great story. But you're right that moving on to Camp Swift was an interesting move by the Army. Mm-hmm.
2: And they suffered a uh, great number of casualties in Italy, didn't they? I mean, Yeah,
1: was- they were one of the highest, uh, you know, per the number of soldiers, deaths and injuries of any infantry division in the war. Hmm. It, it was extremely tough. The Fifth Army was in Italy fighting. They could not push, um, you know, past the Po Valley. They couldn't even get up close to it until the 10th Mountain Division came in and said, look, we'll the German artillery was just annihilating the fifth army from the high points uh, in the Appanese Apen- mountains. And so that's what they had to do was take out these, these artillery positions that and uh, the 10th mountain division was able to do it. And that's why they became so famous and, and so valued because fifth army couldn't do it themselves.
3: It seems odd to me that, you know, okay, the end of world war two. And as the cold war is kicking off, you have this, huge rival that's in a really cold part of the world. It seems odd that you wouldn't have continued that camp hail to me during the Cold War. Is there Was there any sort of rationale? Like, did they just not think they were going to utilize them because they didn't get utilized as much during World War II or?
1: Yeah, so they did kick back up the 10th Mountain Division, but of course they moved them to Fort Drum, New York, which is where they are today. I think it came down to the fact that Camp Hill was just so small, it, it, you're, you're tucked in a mountain valley, eventually you're going to get to a point where we can't fit any more people, you know and and as you know more equipment and, and, and whatnot is applied to the unit, they just couldn't fit that type of, uh, of a unit there anymore. They needed more room. And so that's when they reorganized at Fort Drum. But it's interesting you bring up, you know, what is the use now of Camp Hale for the future? So back in 2018, I was out at Fort Carson at the High Altitude Training Institute meeting, which is the Colorado National Guard and the 19th Special Forces Group. These are our experts in high altitude mountaineering in the Army today. And they were actually talking about the Army is re-looking at a high altitude training center. We already have the aviation, the Army Aviation High Altitude Training Center in Gypsum, Colorado. So every Blackhawk pilot in the nation goes through Gypsum, Colorado to train at how do you, you know, deal with, with thrust in a helicopter at high elevation, uh, which is why a lot of our 14er rescues are done by the um, the high altitude training center, they call it HATS. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys are doing training missions, literally, when they go and rescue hikers off of 14ers that get stranded. And, you know, we don't have to pay for it because the Army just writes it off as a training mission. And so, you know, it works well for the military and for civilians to be able to do that. But Colorado is being looked at again in the mountains to possibly have a an actual training center for infantry to learn, you know, rock climbing and, and that kind of stuff again. Because the, the National Guard does have a, a, a training center in Vermont where they do the rock climbing and, and that kind of stuff today. But again, if you want elevation, you're not going to get that in Vermont. You can only experience that in Colorado or Wyoming or, you know, California.
0: You mentioned, they mentioned they were training for ice climbing. Can you? Is there any ice that you can still climb there near Camp Hill? I know Sean's a big ice climber. He's researching climbing ice on Mount Lincoln, actually, a 14-er over Thanksgiving. Is there any ice to climb yeah, in Camp Hale anymore?
1: So they experimented with that a little bit, and it actually ultimately proved to be a failure. In the winter, they would pour water. This was in uh, Resolution Creek, which is out the northeast side of Camp Hale. And they would just literally pour water on a steep cliff and hopefully get it to freeze enough to where they could actually do rock climbing on or ice climbing. Um, they would even put some wood uh, beams across there to create crevasses and seracs and, and that kind of stuff but they ended up it, it just melted too quickly whenever the sun hit you're at such high elevation that it just melted the thing out and then they actually built a second one on a north facing slope of course being north face is the best for for ice and snow and it melted too so they eventually just abandoned the whole idea after trying it at camp Hale. Mm-hmm. you can find
0: the old pitons right the, the rock climbing routes there
1: Yes, I included a picture of that in my book. Uh, That is just right on the east side of the valley. There's some cliffs right there. And the roads pretty much lead right, you you can, you know, 50 feet away. If you just hike up into one of those little cracks um, on the cliff, that's where I saw the pitons that are still in in the mountain there. And those, yeah, those are original from World War II. Um, They did a lot of rock climbing around there. Mm -hmm.
3: This is maybe kind of a specialist question, but... What ski technique were you they using? Was it telemark or was it the more modern, you know, Christiana Alpine? Yeah, turn? They,
1: they were teaching um, the Christiana turns and whatnot. So there was a big difference between army ski training and civilian ski training. So the army was focused on, hey, you're going to have a 90 pound rucksack on your back while you're going down a mountain on skis. And so, you know, the whole idea of, of fast turns and, and that kind of stuff was just out the window. They were more focused on here's how you snowplow. Here's how you, uh, you know, can get up if you fall down with a rucksack on skis. And it was really kind of basic. And it, there's a lot of veterans in their memoirs that talk about how they, they were recruited by the you know the National Ski Association. Like, hey, this is your dream, go join the army and ski for the rest of your career. And they got to Camp Hale and they were sort of disappointed. They were like, this is not the skiing that I wanted to do. You know, we're not having any fun because we're having to do all these different techniques uh, of learning how to do snow plow skiing and, and very kind of slow movements. But they did utilize that as a recreational opportunity. You know, on the weekends, they would hit the slopes and just have fun. You know, th- this is the first time really that that you have steel-edged skis. That was one of the things the Army adopted and made sure that they, you know, were able to cut into snow and ice and, and work well. You know, all the clothing and equipment, or, or most of the clothing and equipment, was adopted from Europeans that had developed it already. And that primarily came from the fact that a lot of these veterans in the 10th Mountain Division were from Europe themselves. You know, the two von Trapp children that came and fought in the 10th Mountain Division, they left Austria, just like the movie The Sound of Music, came to America, joined the 10th Mountain. And a lot of the best mountaineers in the world left Europe. Friedel Pfeiffer came over to America. And so we had a lot of knowledge. That was good and uh, between the civilians that were recommending things to the army and the experts that we already had in the army because you know they had joined to do this mission um, the army was able to utilize all those different expertise and start developing the equipment that they needed and that was the point of the mountain training center itself uh, was let's test equipment all the time and they continued testing. 1942, 43, 44, almost all the way until they left to go to Europe. We want the best equipment for the mountain troops. And they truly did that. They were always changing the quarter. This is interesting for my next book. The quartermaster was getting mad because they would would make changes to the clothing and equipment so quickly that the quartermaster couldn't keep the documents updated to, to reflect what it was they were actually issuing soldiers. And so the quartermaster eventually was like, you know, this is the general idea of what the soldier is getting, but it may, what is pictured may not actually be the item that the soldier is getting, because things just rapidly um, were changing. And so it, that, that adds another interesting part to the story of uh, how the clothing and equipment really came about.
2: I thought one of the interesting things that that you brought out in the book was sort of that, the dynamic of where Oftentimes the enlisted men knew more as far as you know mountaineering and skiing and and just you know cold weather uh, than you know that than the brass did. I, I thought and that that had to be a, a very interesting dynamic.
1: It was, and it was very difficult because back in World War II, the rank structures were were really respected. You know, officers and enlisted were were two different groups. You know, I would say in the Army today, we've really changed that to where we we mesh a lot easier between officers and enlisted. But, yeah, back then, all your expert skiers were the enlisted. They didn't have college degrees, so they couldn't be officers. And so, you know, these guys coming out of West Point or or whatever school, ROTC program, got assigned to Camp Hill, Colorado. And all of a sudden, they come in, and, and they're the leaders, and they're telling people what to do. Well, the enlisted guys are the ones that were actually ski instructors, and they had the expertise and the knowledge to be able to teach this. And there was a lot of headbutting between them. Uh, some of the officers just never really took it. They said, "I'm not going to. I'm not going to be told what to do from an enlisted man. That's not your job." But eventually, I think that it kind of came around to the fact that, hey, these guys should be respected for what they know, and I, and the army started listening to them. Also, um, guys like Paul Petzelt. I mean, he'd been climbing in in the Himalayas. When he walked into Camp Hale, it was like, "Oh my gosh, we have the world's foremost mountain climber." Why are we not listening to him on mountain rescues with tramways and first aid? And and that was kind of his expertise. And they did that. The, the Army, they finally realized, you know what? Some of these guys really know what they're doing, and we should we should start taking their knowledge. So that uh, yeah, that that's an interesting thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I just kind of ch- changing the topic a little bit, but I, another thing that I did not know was part of the history I and I thought was fascinating was was the fact that Camp Hale actually served as a prisoner of war mm-hmm. camp as well. And and I, I think you referenced that there were 48 prisoner of war camps in Colorado. And and um, I, I just I, I didn't know that history and to just, you know, it would seem like a pretty extensive, you know, to end up with prisoner of war 300 or so at Camp Hale, I, I, I just found that fascinating.
1: Yeah, it, that was a uh, happening all across the country. Um, even where I drill with the National Guard here in Arkansas, Camp Robinson, this, this small, you know, base, we got POWs from Germany also, they, they were sending them over back to the United States and just kind of putting them wherever they could shove them in corners uh, on military bases. And it really did become a problem at Camp Hale because they were so packed in, you know, they had to modify the the general cantonment arrangement that they normally built and compacted just so they could fit everybody in the valley. And so these German POWs would be in barracks right next to American soldiers. And the ramifications of that actually played out Horribly, which I, I detail three interesting stories in my book. The first one, of course, being D- Dale Maple. Uh, he was a German-speaking American um, soldier, and he ended up helping several Germans escape from Camp Hale. Made it to Mexico, but by the time he was actually found by Mexican authorities, and uh, you know, brought back into the United States, he was tried for treason and and literally could have been killed. Um, As part of his punishment, but I think he was actually released from prison in 1951 after the war. Uh, The second story was the Germans in these barracks in the walls had several stills that they were making whiskey and smuggling apricots and different fruits from the mess hall into their barracks and then making, you know, apricot schnapps. The, The authority, the MPs eventually found that at Camp Hale. And then, um, you know, one aspect we haven't talked about yet too was the wax at Camp Hale. The Women's Army Corps. Um, several of them got in big trouble for writing love letters to German POWs at Camp Hale. So yeah, just that close knit nature of American men, German men, American women being that close, it, it just created a lot of problems. Um, but that that's just that's how it went when you're, when you're up at 9,000 feet and everybody's focused on ski and mountain training and not on the POWs, you know, I guess the MPs were the only ones that really could keep them in line. Um, but yeah, interesting story. Oh, well, we're having a
0: POW escape. Well, that's powder day. So let's put that second <laughs> on the list.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm curious, like to talk about the training, basically I kind of want to ask about like how, how we would measure up to like how how skilled and how it, and good endurance these, these snowshoers, these skiers had, I know you talk about in the book about how they would, you know, do a, what 19 or 12 miles uh, cross-country ski. And they'd practice, you know, snowshoeing and skiing up Mount Albert, like in December. What yeah. would that be like? Like how, how would you measure up?
1: They're pretty incredible uh, in their physical abilities. You know, I, I hate to criticize the Generation Zers that we have coming in the military today, but I don't think they're of the same caliber of the greatest generation in World War II. These guys were doing some amazing things at, at temperatures you know, below zero. It, we think about when we go out and want to climb a 14er, you know, if we're going to do one in the winter, there's a lot of precautions we have to take and a lot of research and a lot of clothing and you got to have the right stuff. You know, for the army, it was all right. You guys are going to go climb Mount Elbert and Mount Massive. You've got the correct clothing. You've got the correct gear. Now go do it. You know, and it didn't even matter what the weather was like when they were doing the Elbert Massive one, which is in my book. Um, the day that they did Massive was an absolute disaster of a snowstorm, and I read some of the documents about this uh, this training mission, and the officers were just like. Hey, you guys got what you need. Let's go finish this. Let's summon it and and get back to Camp Hale. They didn't care the fact that, you know, there's a blizzard moving in. And on December, I think it was December 28. I mean, they they were pretty hardcore, you know, mission first. We're going to train. And you never know when you're going to face these conditions in Europe or in the Canadian Rockies or even here in American soil fighting the enemy. And we got to know how to do the best we can be uh, under those circumstances. And so, yeah it it was it really was something else. Um, I, I don't know if you remember from the book the D series maneuvers. This was the last big operation that they conducted at Camp Hale before they shipped off to Camp Swift, Texas. One of the worst snowstorms, um, blizzards that could have occurred during this this whole entire operation and um, one of the, one of the veterans i interviewed and just some of the great comments they had were when they were in europe in italy they said if things get any worse it's going to be d series <laughs> from back at camp hale and so they considered that time at camp hale during d series you know worse conditions worse opportunities than they did even fighting in italy which was you know absolutely amazing Um, But they really did some some fantastic things. And they do credit a lot of the veterans in in oral histories that I've done, they credit the equipment they had, it really was something. The sleeping bags, I mean, they were, they were testing different mixtures of down and, um, you know, feather goose feathers and all sorts of different things. And they really got the mixture down to a science. I forget what it was, it was 60% something and 40% of another, you know, just what is the best sleeping bag to have? And the veterans would tell us, oh, this is another thing. So the mountain tents turned out to be a disaster because they were completely sealed plastic. It was a rubber, some kind of elephant rubber is what they called it. And they would they would trap all the moisture in at night. So you'd wake up in the morning and if you hit the side of the tent, like it was a rainfall down upon you. Yeah. So anyway, um, I said that to get to the sleeping bag again. A lot of the veterans talked about how they would just ditch the mountain tent and just straight straight on the snow or, or pine boughs, you know, cut them off the tree and put some pine boughs down and use their sleeping bag. Uh, and it was that good of a sleeping bag that they could do that at negative degree temperatures. And so... That'll be something I kind of dive into in my next book. They they had a multi-system sleeping bag where there was an inner and an outer layer, and really kind of neat how they they came about developing that. Um, but that that was one of the greatest inventions for the the mountain troops that veterans liked. The other was the stove. You know, we've we've gotten pretty sophisticated nowadays with our backpacking stoves. Well the Mountain Troops in 1941 were using a stove that was not much more heavy, not much heavier than what we have today, which is absolutely amazing. The Model 1941 was the first one that came out, and it it was fairly heavy at uh, 37 ounces. Now, I say fairly heavy given what we have today. A year later in 1942, they came out with the Model 1942 Mountain Stove at 24 ounces. I mean, we're talking about 80 years ago, and they had a 24 ounce cooking stove that could burn any fuel. Didn't matter what it was; it didn't have to. You know, it could be gas, kerosene. You know, whatever they want to throw in there, it would burn it. And uh, it, it became probably the greatest invention for the mountain troops ever to have something like that. That they would compact it down, fold the legs in, and put it inside their pots. It fit inside the cooking pots. And so just to conserve space, um, you know, you guys know as hikers and backpackers that weight is everything. And they were starting to get very sophisticated with that in World War II, trying to bring the weight down because a 90-pound rucksack, I I don't know how they, especially skiing, there's no way, I can hardly walk with a 90-pound rucksack. And they had, you know, stuff hanging off the sides and snowshoes on the top. And it's pretty unbelievable. Mm -hmm.
0: How, how much your kid weigh? Because he was trying his backcountry skiing with his kid on his back this weekend.
3: <laughs> I think I'm about 35 pounds right now. And that was that was That's definitely plenty. I didn't need any extra weight.
1: Yeah. And then you add on, you know, your rifle is actually strapped to your rucksack. So the M1 Garand is like 10 and a half pounds. So you add that onto your weight. And then your ammo, you know, one cl- end block clip of 30 out 6 ammo with eight rounds in it can weigh like a pound or more. You know, it, it's just unbelievable how much stuff they had to take with them in addition to all the camping equipment, but then all your your military uh, rifles and ammo and stuff.
0: Seems like, is, is there any sort of like cross-country race every year? Or? Seems like something Leadville should do, like a nine-mile, 90-pound ruck. Cross-country military fundraiser. I don't think people um, would make it.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, no, that that's an interesting idea. Um, uh, to be able to honor what these guys did. And you know, they created songs about this stuff. They were a singing, you know, group of guys uh that, that talked about the 90-pound rucksack and whatnot. Um, yeah, you, know, you had to find ways to keep your morale up in World War II and and they did it through singing and camaraderie with each other, going out skiing together, camping together. That's how they they maintained that tempo and that that rough life that they had to live. You know, nine thousand two hundred fifty feet every day.
2: Yeah, I think one one of the the quotes that I jotted down uh, was that the the conditions weeded out the week, Right. Absolutely. I mean, like you, you had to really want to to be there, and and you know. Survive that, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So the army kind of found an interesting way to to address that issue. So at first, they would do basic training somewhere else, and then they'd ship these soldiers in on the train. Well, some of the veterans talked about taking one step off the train and like passing out, like they couldn't breathe. So they started conducting basic training at Camp Hale in order to mm-hmm. kind of see hey you know are you going to be a soldier that can make it here if not let's get you the heck out of here before we you know even try to train you and, and the army had to kind of figure this out because a lot of these people would arrive and not have the proper equipment and and that was a big problem because if you don't have a good parka up in the mountains in the winter you're screwed you're in trouble and so the army just they didn't kind of realize that we need to properly equip and clothe people before we do anything with them (laughs) outside the barracks at Camp Hale. But yeah, even the barracks themselves is an interesting story because like I said before, they had a general cantonment plan that they built all across the country. It was the same thing. Camp Hale was completely different. They had to modify everything all the way from the pitches on the roof to no gutters. Uh, They had to make the pitch even steeper to keep snow from building up on the roof. You know they had to compact all the different things in the, the the buildings and whatnot. Just very interesting how the engineer, the Army Corps of Engineers, had to make all those modifications to to fit in the valley.
0: I wanted to ask about their influence on the the Leadville and the Leadville economy. I mean, it was in the it was bad in the Great Depression, and then I, I, I found it funny reading about the basically they needed some place for the soldiers to have R and R, so that was one of the factors that, where to locate the thing. But like the one report said. The morals of Leadville are said to be on a rather low plane. <laughs> Sounds like a pedantic way of the way we describe Sean. A rather low plane. Is that yes. because of all the brothels and like the, the mining town, like just you yeah. know, just rough, rough mining town, gambling, drinking that was Yeah, Leadville? I mean
1: Leadville, Leadville was built on mining in the 1880s, when the silver uh you know boom was going on, is when and Leadville came, you know, on the map. And the 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 repeal of the Sherman anti was it the Sherman Silver Purchase Act in 1893 just killed that bill. 90 uh, percent unemployment after 1893, the city kind of just fell off the map at that point. And, and so they did. They had brothels on um, it was called State Street back in World War II. Today it is w- West Second Street. So if you're coming from the south on US 24, it's like the third street on the left. So you make that turn into town, and then uh, it's where the Pastime Saloon is. So that that saloon was there in World War II. It was called the Pastime Bar, and uh, that street was literally a red-light district. And so what the Army did, while the, the civilians were constructing Camp Hale, um, they could kind of go and, and do some things that they wanted. But once the soldiers arrived around um, October, November of 1942 – they banned soldiers from visiting Leadville all the way from October 42 to February of 43. And at that point, they said, look, we got to have a recreational opportunity for these soldiers to get out and have a beer, go to town, see some ladies, have a good time. And so they, they finally reopened it in February of 43. They still banned State streets. You couldn't go there. Um, and then they set uh, times. You had to be back on a weekday by 11 p.m. at Camp Hale on a weekend, 2 a.m. And uh, yeah, they, they really had some restrictions on the town, but they really did clean it up too. Uh, the mayor of Leadville. They all were 100 percent supportive of the troops at Camp Hale. A very patriotic town uh, throughout World War II. Businesses opened up just about everything for free to soldiers, the golf course, you know, just whatever soldiers really wanted to do. They were very accommodating to them. Um, But yeah, Leadville does have an interesting history. We'll say that.
3: The, uh, were there any altercations between the miners and the soldiers?
1: Well, by 1942, there really wasn't a whole lot of miners, I think in, in Leadville I never read of any altercations that happened between soldiers. Usually that it would be soldiers to soldiers that got drunk and you know beat each other up or something. But yeah, I never read anything about altercations between civilians and soldiers.
2: Yeah, you know, when you when you drive down a main street in Leadville today, it kind of looks like it could be the nineteen forties, right? I mean it like I mean, it's easy to picture in your mind. And no. I think in, in the book, you mentioned some meeting or something that took place in the Manhattan Saloon or the Manhattan Bar or something. And, I mean, that sign is still I mean, that's I mean, that's still yeah. in operation, right? Yeah, there's several
1: bars that are still in operation. Uh, the Pioneer Club, Pastime Bar. Uh, yeah, all of those. I think they're still going today in Leadville. Uh, the Vendom Hotel. That's still there, and they're the ones that offered their lobbies to, for workers to sleep in when they were building Camp Hale because there was absolutely no housing anywhere mm. uh, in and around uh, Redcliffe, Leadville, Minturn. everything was booked up. And so that was actually part of the big boom of Leadville was they renovated so many different buildings so that they could open them up for housing, and just the amount of dollars that were coming in from soldiers spending money there uh, really provided Leadville with a way to stay alive because the town was literally about to to die and fall off the map. The um, the 10th Mountain Division veterans nowadays, we have very few of them left. I, I don't know if you guys watched the ceremony with President Biden. There was a couple that were up on the stage. You know, these guys are, are all at least, what, 98, 99 years old now. And uh, it, it really is something to, to see what can be done to honor their service. And uh, I, I think they, they certainly did something that, like we talked about before, that nobody today could really understand fully, you know, what they did. It, it, it was not nice conditions to live in. Even building, you know, people were living in train cars and living in their, their own car um i just can't imagine doing that in the middle of the you know or at least the beginning of the winter coming into october november of 1942 you know making that sacrifice for the greater good of the country these civilians just really put forth a lot to be able to build camp hale in 8 months a camp that could house 15,000 people in 8 months i don't even think we could do that today at all the, the army it would take eight months for the army to like put a plan forward on how we're going to, you know, do anything before we could build something. It's just mind boggling to me that, uh, what they accomplished in such little time.
2: Yeah. It wasn't something you, you referenced. I mean, they got kind of a premium pay. Right. But then also, uh something like they would guarantee them a 70-hour work week or something like that i mean it was like if you think about that they were they were working a ton
1: yeah they were putting a lot of hours in and i guarantee you these folks were probably putting in more hours than they were paid for or should have because they had the patriotism that drove them to want to get this camp finished And they had a deadline. I mean, you've got to get this done before the winter happens in Colorado or everything's going to come to a standstill. Uh, I think there was one story in there about digging a telephone pole hole, and it was was getting into October, November, and they forgot to dig it. And all of a sudden, you know, the ground's frozen, and they had to essentially put dynamite in the ground just to get a telephone pole hole in. (laughs) And so you know little things like that 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 wouldn't happen in Georgia you know when we're building a camp there just absolutely interesting things that uh, they had to deal with and
0: yeah I like uh, your one picture that from your your collection that has like the hitler yeah cartoon it says let's be on let's be on time
1: <laughs> yeah we've got a date with this son of a bitch <laughs> you know the things they put on signs back in world war II, they would not fly in the military or anywhere today <laughs> They they demonized the enemy, which, you know, America frowns on today, or our military does too. But uh, that was part of the patriotism, you know, that they, they had all the bond drives that were going on and Camp Hill, you know, they were leading and in, in buying bonds and whatnot. And very, very patriotic people um, for certain. So with this being, you know, a focus on 14ers, I wanted to go back to Mount of the Holy Cross. Um, there was really three 14ers that the the mountain troops hiked you know elbert massive and mount of the holy cross just in that vicinity and um, one of the interesting things about mount of the holy cross i don't think a lot of people maybe outside colorado know this is that it has been a, a landmark in america you know dating back to the early 1900s it was almost worshipped by people um, with artwork and pictures of the cross um, and one of the things I didn't even realize until a couple of years ago was that um Mount of the Holy Cross was a national monument in America at one point in time. So in 1929, it was designated a national monument, and um it lasted until 1950. And part of the blame, and again, this was another Forest Service-run national monument. Part of the blame was on Camp Hale because they utilized the, uh, the area around Mount of the Holy Cross for operations. And so the National Monument in 1942 basically got fenced off. You could not hike as a civilian up to the Mount of the Holy Cross.
0: Oh, so you couldn't?
1: Yeah. Huh. And so people started to lose interest in it. You know, it used to be this great icon of America. And now we can't even hike up to it because they shut it down for military reservation. And so the blame kind of gets on Camp Hale and the War Department. You know, By 1950, it had become so remote and so desolate that um, they, they literally, de- they took the designation of National Monument away. And uh, from 1950 until today, um, they eventually of course made the wilderness area uh, in and around Holy Cross. That was kind of the, the next move to say, sorry, we took the National Monument away, but we'll make it wilderness now. But I I did find that very interesting because it did have an impact from Camp Hale on one of our 14ers that we, you know, hiked today. Uh,
0: He did his homework, really tied this conversation into 14ers.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I love the 14ers so much and just, and that was part of why I wrote this book initially was I, I, I drove by Camp Hale on US 24 so many times hiking the 14ers and all I saw, you know, were these rundown signs that were faded out I'm like, what is this place? What do these people do here? And uh, and of course, I, I joined the military back in 2007. And so I'm like, well, this is the greatest tie-in I could have with the U.S. Army and mountains. And I get to write about it and research about it. You know, who wouldn't want to do that? And so that that's really what got me interested in it. And uh, yeah, they they enjoyed the 14ers as much as we did, or we do.
0: Did you did you ever climb Notch Mountain from that and get that view of the Holy Cross? Or did you go from I actually have uh, not. Um uh,
1: we came up from the south side when we did Holy Cross and I forget what the name of the ridge is, but uh, yeah, we didn't take the standard route doing it.
0: Uh, I think um, Sean was interested interested to ask you about your 13 uh, thirteener climbing and your Ellingwood Ridge. Uh adventure
1: yeah. This so summer. We, that was my latest uh, a 14-er climb was this this uh, fall, actually, in September. My brother and I went out there and did Ellingwood Ridge up La Plata, which was uh, very interesting. Um, definitely not like any standard route up a 14-er. Have I any of you guys done it before?
0: We were researching that. I mean, there's one good trip report on 14-ers that we heavily looked at. We were always curious about that because you're above treeline for uh, the whole day, it feels oh, like. Oh,
1: yeah. You, you got to find a good day to do it for weather because there's really no escape route off the ridge. And, I mean, it, it took us, we kind of got a later start because we had we had such good weather. We knew the day was going to be great. And so we didn't start till about 730, I think. And we did not get down the mountain until darkness. Thankfully, the standard route down is pretty easy with a headlamp and whatnot. But we were already right. below so treeline by the time it, it, it got dark but man, it, it took us all day. It, it's just a, a root finding, um, you know, dropping off the ridge to avoid some of the cruxes. You know, we're, we're pretty, we've done all 58-14ers, but if we can avoid class four, we'll do it. <laughs> we'll drop below it just to be safe. Uh, a little extra mileage, a little extra elevation, but, you know, I'm not risking my life and my brother and i both have four kids so we have eight children between the two of us that we have to make sure we stay alive for so <laughs> um, on the 13er side so we went down to the 10 mile range which of course now is part of the national monument the camp Hale and, mm. and continental divide national monument so we did i think was it five 13ers in one day helen father dyer crystal Pacific Atlantic kind of all around the bowl there just doing right near
0: uh, Quandary right
1: yeah it's yeah McCullough Gulch it's just south of there um yep. yeah you just hike up onto the you stay on the ridge pretty much the entire way around but yeah five 13 in one day absolutely fantastic we really enjoyed it and we've really started focusing on the 13 ers now just because you know how popular the 14 ers have gotten you know they're they're fun but man there's some great 13 ers in colorado that really can provide some great hikes and climbs <laughs> You carry,
0: you carry a 90-pound rucksack, right, when you do this? No, of
1: course, yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: no, we're, we're definitely not ultra-light hikers, but um, yeah, we, we like to keep it as light as possible.
3: <laughs> I'm amazed, you know, going back to the conversation about the this these amazing soldiers in the 10th Mountain Division, what they did in the war is amazing in, in and of itself, but what they did after the war... I mean, Mm -hmm. so many of them went on to be huge names in, like, the ski industry, climbing industry, outdoor apparel industry. They started ski resorts. Like, these guys did just amazing things for outdoor enthusiasts in the United States that I don't think they get as much credit as maybe they should. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you look at the number of ski resorts, not just in in the Rocky Mountain West, but, you know, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, California. All these ski resorts, you know, you look at when they were founded and who founded them and like nine times out of 10, it's some 10th mountain veteran that founded some ski resort. It's really amazing.
1: Yeah. And what was so great after the war was, you know, the army had produced thousands of pairs of skis and they sold these off after the war for like $3 for a pair of skis. And so, you know, people were just picking these up all over the place and taking them, like you said, out East back to Vermont and whatnot. And, uh, that I think that really did have a lot of impact on, on the boom for the ski industry after the war. Um, these folks coming back and, you know, for them, you know, we talk about shell shock in World War II. Today, we talk about PTSD. I think this was a way for 10th Mountain veterans to come back and deal with PTSD, was to go hit the slopes, was to go up into the mountains, um, you know, be away from the, the hustle and bustle of the city. And their passion for it turned into an industry. And a massive industry, you know, today. But yeah, that they really applied themselves when they got back
2: and and did something with their lives, and uh, very impactful. It's been fascinating. Really appreciate your time. I I I enjoyed the book. You know, I would say until this past summer when I hiked through there, I'd kind of always you know heard of, known about Camp Hale, but never never dove into it in any kind of detail. So, um, it was, uh, it, it was, it was really fun getting to learn about it. So
1: good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And, uh, hopefully we'll have some more in- interpretive aspects at camp Hale coming up here in the next few years that, uh, more people on us 24 can get a better idea of what happened there.
0: And your recall of dates and t- and history is fun to talk to you.
1: I really do appreciate the time. uh, It's fun for me to be able to talk about the stuff that I'm passionate about. And I think we all have a a good general interest in the mountains of Colorado. So uh, the topic applies well.